Welcome to another Dragonlance Saga review episode. It is uh, Bakukul Dark Ember the Fourth. My name is Adam, and today I'm reviewing <laughs> Dragon Knight. I have to like look and see where I'm. Dragon Knight by Dan Willis. Uh, another book in the series. Another author. Pretty much the same story complaints, but I actually did enjoy this. So let's get into it a little bit. But I, you know, just to preface this, I will be spoiling the story. So if you don't want to know the story or you want to go into a blind when you get around to reading this book, because I'm sure you're going to get around to reading the book, uh, go ahead and turn this off. Come back after you've read it and uh, we can sort of, well, you can just watch. <laughs> I'm not going to be here to chat at that point. But in any case, uh, I would like to take a moment to thank the members of the channel and invite you to consider becoming a member by visiting the link in the description below. You can always pick up Dragonlance Gaming Materials by using my affiliate link in the uh, description below as well. That being said, the way these work are I give you my pre-written review, and then afterward, if anyone's joining live, uh, just throw up your questions or comments about the story or Dragonless in general, and then I'll get around to it, and we'll just sort of riff a little bit. It is a Friday night. I'm sitting here with a really uh, tall glass of Pinot Noir, which is delightful, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this evening, so let's get into it. So this novel seems to be exclusively dealing with Davin from the Companions. He is wrestling with his failure of saving Niara from Asvoria and the supposed death of Elidor. He has taken Elidor's flute and is actually practicing using it as a symbol of honor to his blood brother's memory. Quick note about that flute, you never see it again throughout the entirety of the novel. It's brought up once as like a passing comment and then it just disappears. All right, whatever. He's drinking himself into a funk, and when returning to his room at an inn, he's attacked and knocked out before realizing who it is. He wakes up, and it turns out it's Niara's sister, Jira. Now, we learn that Jira is looking for Niara to have her end her family's curse. Their ancestor, whose name was Anselm, was the last of a long line of very potent wizards, but they were cursed somehow, and she has this dragon statue called the Trinistir which has something to do with the curse or something to do with the power or something to do with something. It's never really fully explained. Or if it was, I wasn't paying attention enough to grasp it. Hey, uh, Jonathan, thanks for joining life. So the problem is that if they drop the curse when Asvoria is still in control of Niara, then she will have access to their ancestral divine arcane power, and they can't really have that. So Jira insists on Davin helping her find Niara, and Davin is taken aback by Jira's resemblance to Niara. I mean, they are sisters, right? So he agrees to take her to the town of Potter's Mill to talk with the seer Shemnara. Of course, this, I think this was like the third or fourth book that they ended up going to uh, Potter's Mill. It was the Dragonwell book. So they uh, head into the Vingard Mountains again with proper provisions, and they stop at the dog's trading post to end up uh, equipping for the journey, and they visit their own old friend, the dwarf dog who runs the trading post. They finally get into the town and meet all of their old friends from a few books back. I was excited to see Sedai again. He's still alive and he's still the great father figure that Davin needs. And arguably, he's the best character in this entire series thus far. And since this is the second to last book, I'm going to go ahead and, on a limb and just say he's the best character in this entire series thus far. Shimnar, however, is a seer. She tells Davin that the only way to defeat Asvoria and separate her from the connection that they made in the Dragon Well was, which is the only reason why Niara is still alive, by the way, is to get the aid of Odvar, the Thiwar dwarf that worked with Madoc, and have him guide this new group of companions into Virnesh Keep to seek the aid of the Dragon Knight. This may seem like an insanely convoluted story with very few characters that always keep returning with zero consequence to any of them. And that would be the correct assumption, because this is like a home game where it's just a bunch of friends sitting around. Some of them were just total assholes working against the party's greatest intentions. We've all had those playing characters in the group. Uh, and then we just like, well, we, you know, we only have so many players in this campaign, so let's just keep bringing them back and let's just keep referring to the same people. And, you know, the bad guys are now the good guys. and They're not really good, but they're helping us in the moment. And sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend's sort of deal. It's very it's sort of Saturday morning cartoony 
And if you didn't grow up with G.I. Joe and He-Man, it may seem really ridiculous and stupid from a narrative standpoint. And that's because it's really ridiculous and stupid to keep referring to the exact same characters that are one book back antagonists, but now you have to work with his friends to accomplish greater goals together. Grow the hell up, authors. How lazy can you possibly be? But I do like this story. <laughs> but wait. So, reluctantly, Davin agrees to approach Odvar about help, and he finds him in a town called Arnal, working as a blacksmith. Od You'll remember that um, Odvar actually abandoned all of them after being thrown off of a roof magically by As uh, Asvoria. So we just assumed he died, because if you are a dwarf, or any mortal being magically thrown off the top of a keep, your chances of survival should be zero. But in this series, no one ever dies, no one ever suffers any consequences, so you just expect to see everyone come back. And they do. So, Odvar reluctantly agrees to take uh, them to this keep with the promise of keeping any treasure that they find. I think I, I skipped over... Yes, they got to go to Virnesh Keep to seek out the aid of the Dragonite. So, the only person that's ever gotten out of Virnesh Keep is Odvar, which is why they have to go to him for help. Um, he agrees to help them if he can keep any treasures they find, when suddenly an elf accosts Davin as he's playing the elven flute, questioning him about where he got this flute. And a bunch of men watching Odvar decide to draw all of their swords, presumably to attack. Now... Really quick, splitting the party is something that made sense in Chronicles because there was a ton of people in the group. But in this story, it doesn't make any sense because there's only a handful of people in the group. But they do it anyway. And it, it's strange, but like the last novel I gave a review of is happening concurrently when this novel is happening. So, <laughs> I do like the pain that Davin is feeling as it feels real. It feels like Davin is an actually real person with real regret and sorrow and loss. So far, I am actually enjoying the story and I'm not missing Catriona or Sindri at all because I had way more complaints about their characters, specifically Sindri and Magic, than I ever did about Davin. However, the battle. So, those guys pull out their swords, the battle ensues, and it was all about Odvar owing money to these ruffians. The attackers abandon their quarry after being overwhelmed by Davin, said I, Mud, who's all grown up now, is sort of a thief character now, and a newcomer elf called Rena. Rena is the elf that questioned Davin about the flute. Odvar showed back up after the fight and said I told him that if he ever abandoned them during Brawl again, he would whip his ass. And Odvar just sort of, you know, acknowledged that he spoke and just moved on, just ignoring him. Sort of like the total Odvar thing to do. And here's the truth of the matter. I like Odvar. There's no reason why I should like Odvar. He is a garbage henchman character. But for some reason, he can survive when everyone else around him should have died. And he doesn't really have any allegiances. Like, he's thrown out of his home. His parents hate him. His people hate him. He was only working for Madoc to get magical power in order to punish the people who spurned him. I kind of like that sort of self-interested survival comes first and foremost and revenge is a sort of motivational factor type character. And that personifies Odvar. So as much as I don't like him, I kind of dig him. <laughs> it's... You know, what are you going to do? All right. So the addition of this elf, Rena, was really out of left field. It made no sense why at one point she would aggressively speak to Davin. And then the second point, she's like, hey, let me come with you guys. And again, it felt very much like, well, we have these players at the table. And this game session is only about these few players. So all you other players who had your other characters in the other book, how about you play new characters and we'll just all work together. That's, this is very much like, this whole series is like a home game, which is really the only redeeming quality about the entire series. Okay, so that being said, it almost feels like they're setting her up to be Elidor's half-sister, which would be completely lame from a story standpoint. And as, as, as I was editing this, that's exactly what they did. And it was completely fucking lame from, oh, sorry, 
completely lame from a story standpoint. They did the most lazy and obvious storytelling technique to bring a foreign character into an established character's narrative by saying, oh, I'm the half-sister of the character that you're mourning. So let's go, go to it together. Let's work together. We're, we're friends. So lazy, so obnoxious, and so obvious before they... Like, they don't even tell you that until the last third of the novel. But you knew the second she joined the group that that's exactly why. So lazy. All right. So, and so I just have to say, Dan Willis in this particular case, but every author who has ever touched these New Adventures books, are you just bored? Like, are, are you mailing it in? Are you just lost all semblance of trying to tell an interesting story just for the sake of, well, I didn't start this series. I'm just a one-off author in the series. I'm just going to keep it going and, you know, let the ne next author really figure it out. Because that's what it feels like. And it sucks as someone who loves Dragonlance and who loves a good Dragonlance story. Because very few of these new adventures are good Dragonlance stories. If any, arguably. So, they all get on a barge. <laughs> they go downriver. They stop at a town before they hit Viranesh Keep uh, for this Dragon Knight, the title character. Um, the town also has it, in for out, or has it out for Odvar, as he seems to be the only person who has ever gotten they're uh, inside the keep and out and this town only exists for other treasure hunters to go into the keep and come out but since none have come out this town consists solely of people who have lost treasure hunting uh, either loved ones or companions or friends and they all know Odvar apparently so um, they end up blaming Odvar for all of their loved ones deaths they wake them up early in the morning, pounding on the common room door in order to uh, sort of, you know, collect and, I don't know, maybe hang all of these companions. Uh, and the companions end up going out through the window. There wasn't any kitchen with a hole in the ground, so what are you going to do? So the townspeople realize that they snuck out of the window and begin to form a posse to hunt the companions down. So now the companions finally get to the cursed keep and Odvar says that he got out through a sewer system that ended up collapsing behind him. So he has to begin digging just before the collapse and everyone notices that the posse is then coming up behind them. So they all rush to get into the tunnel um, after it was opened just as they get into it, it collapses behind them, saving them from the mob, but trapping them in the sewer system of the keep. So they crawl deeper in, because they don't have any other choice, into the building. They discover that they, um, they have to crawl into even more of these sewage pipes in order to get into the actual keep itself. They eventually make it into uh, what appears to be a tomb... Uh, there are two sarcophagi and a dragon statue in this room. Davin looks at the statue and has this tiny unbalanced sword and shield, but really nothing of value. He ends up taking the sword for some crazy reason. Davin ends up looking at what appears to be a door, but in the seams of all the doors, plaster is like seeping through on their side, leading them to believe that it was plastered over on the other side to hide this room from uh, entry. So they begin to break through the wall when a group of wild men wander into the room on the other side of the hole that they're breaking through. And they're acting like berserkers. They immediately like, scream and attack them, jumping through the hole, like assaulting everyone. Uh, the fighting causes the ceiling to collapse and not everyone could get through the hole in order to avoid the collapsed ceiling. Hector, the gnome, and Mud, the thief, were apparently buried. Now there's one point that I'm just noticing now that I totally glossed over. And that's that they went to go find the help of an old war friend, an old veteran war friend of Setai's during the War of the Lance. And it was this gnome that ended up making all these wonderful little contraptions that just happened to work uh, for the Knights of Salamnia. And uh, so he went to him to ask him for some help in, you know, going into Viranesh Keep and finding this Dragonite character and getting out when no one else could get out. The gnome said he's too old, he's in, engrossed in his, his uh, work, he can't do it. His son volunteers to go because his son has this really uh, sort of tragic uh, story that his father is seen as a failure by other gnomes because his contraptions work. They're not complex enough. 
And so he wants to redeem his father's uh, reputation, the family name's reputation, in the gnomish community's eyes by going on this adventure, succeeding, and probably dying uh, in the way of every great adventuring gnome who tries to make contraptions that fail and they die in the failure. But that means that they completed their life quest or that, that portion of the life quest of attempting to complete a contraption. It's this really convoluted, crazy idea that doesn't make any sense at all unless you understand gnomes from Kryn because they don't make sense. Then it makes perfect sense. <laughs> so I really appreciate that at least with gnome culture, they stuck true to how gnomes are treated. Insane um, uh, um, engineers. That's really how they made them. So uh, they end up getting him. His name is Hector. He's a, a just a badass little gnome guy who's just really super creative. He gets along great with mud. And those are the two, the thief, um, that ended up getting buried alive. However, as has been shown by the five or six novels preceding this one, no one ever dies. There is no consequence. So there's no possible way at this point in the book you're actually thinking that Hector and Mud died. It's ridiculous. Like, how could they possibly die even if they were swallowed by a dragon? Somehow, these authors would write them back into existence, sort of like Richard Knack, with Huma Dragonbane and Kaz the Minotaur. They're just like, they miraculously survive every encounter by passing out. And then they wake up and they're in a safe spot. So this author is taking that cue. It's a shitty trope of Dragonlance books that there are few and far between consequences that happen to characters. But if you're a dumbass, you should die. There should be consequences to stupid actions. That's just like, they are in life. I take a hammer and I hit myself, there's going to be a consequence. I might have a concussion. I could, you know, rupture my eyeball and have it spurt out in all gelatin or something. Like, there's innumerable consequences that could happen from doing something stupid. Unless you're in a Dragonlance novel, then it's okay. Because you're going to show up in Chapter 7 or something like that. So, I don't know why I'm freaking out so badly, but it does really bother me. So Davin's freaking out because, of course, two more people seemingly died on his watch, even though Elidor never died on his watch, and Niara is still very much alive in her own body, but is taken over by Asvorius. So he's never actually lost anyone, except for his father, but then that really wasn't his fault, so he doesn't really have any reason to be mourning these people. But if you just suspend disbelief, then it's okay. So, Odvar tells him that the tunnel will collapse on them if they try to dig those two out without bracing the ceilings, and they clearly don't have any lumber in order to brace the ceiling, so they all resign themselves to the reality that their friends are dead, and they have to move on to the keep further. Now, you may be asking yourself, just as I asked myself, that this exact situation happened in the last book with Elidor, or two books back in, with Elidor, and yeah, it did happen. And did Elidor get crushed by the ceiling that collapsed on him? No, he just escaped. So why would we ever think that Hector and Mud would die? You did the exact same situation with other characters. Like, it's just so ridiculous. If you're building a narrative that is supposed to be suspenseful, or, uh, you know, you have like a twist where, oh, they're not actually dead, then don't do the exact same thing more than once. It... It's stupid. It's lazy. All right. So we've already put to bed that the author sucks. So we've been here before, and that time Elidor wasn't dead, so I don't believe Hector and Mud are either. They all caught, uh, they're eventually caught by knights who take them to Gurgut Viranesh, who is the heir to the Dragon Knight. It turns out that the Dragon Knight died a long time ago, but he didn't want his own heir to become the Dragon Knight because his heir, Gurgut, Worships Tachesis. And so instead, which is, this is such a strange storyline, uh, story beat. Instead of just hiding the sword uh, or refusing uh, in some public way of acknowledging that Gurgut will be the next Dragon Knight, whatever that even means, because we don't know, it's just a title. So rather than having Gurgut be the next Dragon Knight, he puts a curse on the keep, preventing anyone from leaving it. Seems a really uh, extravagant way 
of preventing your nephew from becoming your heir. But, okay. Like, <laughs> it's really weird. So he just needs the sword in order to lift the curse of the keep. Davin shows him a sword that he found from the statue, but it wasn't the right one, presumably, telling him about the tomb tombs that he found. Gurgut demands that they dig the tombs out. So the knights and Gurgut act completely mad and insane. They have been trapped in the keep for some 20 years, so their state of mind is kind of understandable. He also acts like the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland, who doesn't get his way. He just says, off with their heads. That's Gurgut. The queen from Alice, queen of hearts, from Alice in Wonderland. Okay. So Gurga insists that they're punished for not giving him his sword that they don't actually have immediately and makes them sleep in a well that's filled with this brackish water. So, there's so much about this that makes zero sense. So they literally take the companions to a great covered well, open the grate, throw them in the water. And so they are supposed to be able to tread water all night long and then wake up the next morning and be full of vitality and dig out a tomb that just collapsed. <laughs> it makes no sense at all. Okay. So it's here that we discover that Rena is Elidor's half-sister, and she hired Odvar to find Davin so that she could kill Davin for having killed Elidor. But then she learns that Davin was Elidor's blood brother and actually loved him as family, so that's why she decided to stay and help. Again, it's a situation of, well, we have a player at the table whose character isn't featured in this session, so let's just give her another character to play so that she doesn't just sit there or go home. Very lazy and stupid. Meanwhile, Mud and Hector didn't get crushed. Shock and awe. <laughs> they went back into the sewer pipes when the ceiling began collapsing and made their way into this kitchen area where they discovered that the keep magically prepares food for those trapped within it. They wander into a dining hall and are seemingly caught by some unknown persons. The next morning, the companions are taken back to the well I'm sorry, taken out of the well in order to dig out the tomb that they collapsed. They uncover one casket, but it doesn't have the Dragonite sword. They don't have enough energy to uncover the second one today, so they returned to the well. Because... <laughs> I mean, they're insane. Like, the people inside this keep are insane and have been in here for 20 years. So it's like going into a, an insane asylum and expecting them to act logically. They wouldn't. And that's kind of how they can get, how the author can get away with this, the insanity that is happening in this keep. But it actually kind of works as frustrating as it is to the reader. Narratively, it kind of makes illogical sense, if that makes any sense, <laughs> if I'm making any illogical sense. So that's where Mud and Hector find them in the well, saying that they will let them out. It turns out that the group, uh, that Hector and Mud ran into were called the Freeholders. And there are actually three different groups fighting for control of this keep. There's the looters who live on the upper level. They were the berserkers that they first entered when they entered the tomb. Um, which the keep doesn't provide enough food for. There's Gurgut's group who has more than enough food and ends up paying off looters for gear and info on newcomers to the keep. And then there's the freeholders who have the right amount of food for their numbers. Um, it's all, you know, it's that sort of that, uh, the, what is that bear story for kids? Like my porridge is too hot. My porridge is too cold. My porridge is just right. That's these three different groups and the amount of food that they're given. And there's this one actually genuinely wonderful trope running throughout all of this where, um, uh, thanks, Jason. I really appreciate it. How you doing? Uh, they eat the exact same thing every single day. The, the magic of the keep just creates the same meal over and over and over again. And so they sort of go crazy eating the same thing. But once a week, it makes pudding. And so pudding becomes this... Uh, it's like cigarettes in prison, right? It's like the bartering... 
and the only moment of joy that breaks the monotony of life for the people trapped in this keep. And you see them like threatening each other. If you don't do this right, uh, yeah, you won't get your pudding this week. And everyone's like, oh shit, I got to get my pudding. I got to do everything right. You know, I've got to act appropriately or do whatever just shit job they assigned to me just so I can get my pudding. It's a, it's absurd. It's crazy, but it's really, really funny. And then th there's this knight that works for Gurgut who constantly drops his sword and they end up calling him Butterfingers. So this <laughs> really ridiculous knight who is a guard who is incapable of holding on to a sword like a through line of the entire novel that they're trapped in this stupid keep is the sound of clanging swords falling on the ground because the dude can't keep a hold of it. It's stupid and ridiculous, but it's kind of funny too. And I really appreciate it. All right. So uh, maybe the author's not hundred percent terrible. So all of them have given up hope of ever leaving this uh, keep at this point. Davin explains to the freeholders that the sword situation uh, that, you know, Gurgut is freaking out about. And Odvar reveals that uh, he reveals himself to the leader. Now, it turns out that Odvar was a part of the freeholders when they first entered the keep. And he was the only one that ended up getting out, assuming everyone else died. And so the Freeholders are appropriately incredibly pissed off at Odvar for not coming back for them and go to like straight up murder them. But Davin ends up like sort of, you know, doing the stalemate. Um, Odvar and Davin explain to the Freeholders how they can end the curse if they can get their hands on the sword. So they devise a plan to set the upper levels of the keep on fire to draw Gurga and the looters up to the fire. Then the freeholders will go down into the tomb, tunnel through it, get into the other uh, uh, sarcophagus, and hopefully find the sword and the curse, get out and have a great cup of tea and maybe some pudding at the town down the street. <laughs> That's the plan. What could possibly go wrong? So Odvar is positive that it can be done. Mud and Hector go to set the fire, but in all of the chaos, Hector ends up saving Mud and giving him an escape route, sacrificing himself along the way. The freeholders uh, with the companions enter the tomb to see that they, tomb, the second sarcophagus was already opened up and there was nothing found therein. And then Gurgut and his forces end up arriving in the tomb. So the ceiling caves in as Odvar had planned because Odvar believes that the ceiling of the tomb isn't too deep uh, of earth above it. And if they collapse it, they can actually escape through the, the ceiling. And so he plans on like removing some of these braces in order to not only stop Gurga and his group, but also to let the freeholders and the companions get out. So... Um, the Freeholders, uh, it ends up working. Uh, ultimately, it means that uh, Odvar has to sacrifice himself to do this act. Uh, but he ends up doing it. And there's this really beautiful moment between Odvar and Davin. Where Odvar, you know, we, we have to sort of contextualize the whole relationship here. Because Davin grew up believing that Madoc was his father, even though he wasn't. Um, Odvar has been working with Madoc for years. And so Davin and Odvar grew up, if not like brothers, then like cousins, you know, like they grew up together living with Madoc, both working for him in some means. And um, Odvar is, you know, he's this really sort of shitty Thiwar dwarf, but he's grudgingly sort of learned to respect Davin for his leadership style, his care and concern. He's gone out on a limb for Odvar on a number of occasions throughout the book so far. So he gave him the best compliment he could. And he said, if I ever have a son, I want him to be like you. Which touched me as a father, but also meant that Odvar turned a leaf. You never thought he could. You never thought he would. You never thought, why would he? It doesn't make any sense until you realize he's going to have to sacrifice himself in order to have Davin have this moment of yet another loss. But this is the only situation where there's, except for Hector, so this is the only book, two different characters, who have actually suffered consequences. Two actual characters of the party that the story's focused on have actually died. And so it, it really did mean something. It, you know, the whole time I'm thinking, well, they have to keep getting out because that's how it's been the whole time. But they didn't. They actually died. 
And so this author actually did the one thing that I've been complaining about for seven novels so far. You have to tip your cap. You have to appreciate that, right? I certainly did. I, I was blown away. So the freeholders and the companions uh, enter the tomb that they... Um, they see that was already opened and the second grave was already open, but there's nothing in it. Then Gurga and his forces arrive. The ceiling caves in as Advar planned, but he had to sacrifice himself in order to get it to cave in. Gurga is fighting Davin as everyone else does. Uh, I'm sorry, as everyone else escapes. So it's really like Gurga v. Davin battle. Now, Gurga, I didn't explain it, but he's this massively obese man because for 20 years, he's just been constantly eating whatever the keep has been giving him. And so he's like this monstrosity of a human being and i don't know if you guys have ever fought very large people i have and it's actually a challenge <laughs> so i felt bad for davin because he's a big dude he's facing off against and I, you know there's only so many times you can punch a stomach before you realize it's not really doing anything to the dude it's just the reality of mass you know, it, just, it, it distributes more when there's more fat between you and your vital organs. Uh, so Davin's having a hard time with it. During the fight, Gurgut ends up accidentally opening a secret tomb to the Dragon Knight. And Davin's like, I'm out. You know, he, he sees his opening and he's taking it. So he goes up with everyone else. He realizes that as soon as he gets up there, he sees everyone rolling around, screaming, crying, laughing, playing in the grass. Like, they're finally out after 20 years of being trapped. And he's sitting there going, I should be happy. I should be going with them. But I was sent here to get the Dragon Knight's help. And if Gurgut gets that sword, I'm not going to get the help. And so he goes back in, knowing he may never make it out alive. And this was a really informative moment um, for Davin as a character I thought it was really great that he went back into it knowing he probably wasn't going to make it out, but this was the only chance he had. Um, let's see. So uh, he ends up going back in to get the sword. The Dragon Knight is actually awakened in the fight between Gurga and Davin, and the Dragon Knight salutes Davin as the whole complex starts to collapse due to Gurga's, you know, ridiculous fighting techniques within this uh, mining pick. So Davin ends up fleeing with this terrible unbalanced sword that he found, and he believes that he's failed yet again. And this time, it cost the lives of Odvar, uh, who Davin had grown to respect, and Hector. So as everyone is leaving, the keep ends up collapsing in on itself, and they're stopped by the townspeople who saw the burning keep and came to investigate it. They see all of their loved ones, the freeholders, and they end up having this massive party and as everyone is reunited. However, Sedai actually had a wounded arm throughout this entire thing. He crawled through sewers with an open wound. It got infected, understandably. And now the doctor is saying that we're going to have to amputate his arm. There's no way around it. And Davin knows that Sedai is a hunter. He's a warrior. If I amputate his arm, that's his life. That's his livelihood. I can't do it, but it's either his arm or his life. So Davin finally relents and says, fine, take his arm. The scene reminds me of like some weird uh, um, Civil War era way of healing people. Like, well, he's got a toothache. We're going to have to take his leg. <laughs> you know, it's just like, what? I don't, I, how does A equal B? He has an infected cut on his arm. So you have to remove the arm. Because clearly the infection has already spread throughout his whole system. How is removing the arm going to remove the infection? doesn't make any sense. But what are you going to do? So um, after uh, Sedai's uh, wounded arm uh, is removed, uh, they all return to the town and book passage back to Potter's Mill to report their failure, hoping that the seer Shannara... I'm sorry. Um, it's not Shannara. It's uh, Shem... Nara, <laughs> creative turnaround for a different character and different story um, on, you know, what insight she might have on what they got to do next. The whole point of this book was to get to the Dragon Knight's castle, get his help in order to defeat Asvoria. That's the whole point. So they get to the keep. The Dragon Knight's dead. There is no other Dragon Knight. And so they leave. And now 
like they just lost again. And this is a running theme throughout all of these books. They have never succeeded at anything they have ever tried to do. So it's not too dissimilar from a regular gaming, se <laughs> gaming session that I've ever been a part of. Anytime we've ever seemingly like succeeded, it's like an accident. It's like a mistake. It's like we stumbled through chaos and just happened to win. You know, it, I've never been in a group where we just felt confident the whole time and we just waylaid every challenge and, you know, we were successful. It's always like we're crawling out of the earth, like gasping for breath, like, <gasps> we did it! We're alive! <laughs> you know? I don't know. Is anyone else? I have horrible dice rolls, though, so I'm, I'm cursed. So anyway, they arrive at Shimnara, and she tells them that they actually succeeded. They removed the curse of the Dragonite's keep, and the Dragonite saluted Davin, which I guess was the way that Davin would be chosen as his successor. And so she takes this worthless blade that Davin took from the tomb, and she plunges it into the little scrying pool of dragon blood, and uh, it turns into this brilliant keen blade of the Dragonite. And with it, Davin can now sever Niara from Asvoria. Now, it, doing that did cost Shimnara all of her powers, however, but then she regained her sight. So it's not all bad. Shimnara tells Davin that she needs to go into the service, that he needs to go into the service of Asvoria, and when the time is right, strike her down with the Dragonite's sword. His new companions need to unite with his old companions in Palanthus and come to aid him in Asvoria's defeat. So this all happened simultaneously with the last novel, which I really like story-wise. I also love that the whole mix with the three different factions in the keep vying for control of the keep. I thought that was a really wonderful turn of sort of adventuring events. Like I might steal that for a future adventure at some point. It just created for a very interesting narrative. Um, and we actually saw consequences. We actually had people die, not live and are told that they died like Elador, not seem to have died and then returned like Elador uh, in literally every other character in this whole book or the series of books, but actually died. And I loved it. I, it, it was just amazing. So with the deaths of Odvar and Hector, the loss of Sedai's arm, uh, with one final novel in this series, I'm actually hopeful that they can pull off it the, the conclusion in a very interesting way. It's also fun to watch Jira and uh, Rina, which Jira is uh, Niara's sister that started Davin on this whole adventure, and Rina is Elidora's half-sister. Both of them are like sort of mildly fighting over Davin for his affections, and Davin is, of course, like smitten with Niara, and so he is sexually attracted to these two, but he doesn't really want to engage with them because he likes Niara. And seeing them... Uh, sort of fight each other over him and seeing him squirm throughout the process is a lot of fun to watch too. Uh, it sort of reminds me of the the whole Spelljammer series of novels where Teldon Moore, uh, like every other book, fell in love with someone new like Captain Kirk in Star Trek and like ended up like breaking their hearts or they broke his hearts or he left and met them later. And like, there's never any satisfying ending to any like sexual romantic encounters except for Tannis and Lorana. And that only happened in, well, Carmen and Tiga. And that only happened after years of Tannis running away from Lorana and her just chasing after him. <laughs> you'll love me. I know you'll love me. And he eventually did. So ultimately, um, I did like this book, and if you have read everything preceding it, you might as well read this too, because it's the better of this whole series of books. I was pleasantly surprised as much as I was frustrated, and that's different because I'm usually just frustrated. <laughs> and I can see from a viewer of these reviews standpoint, just pointing at me and saying, you clearly don't like Dragonlance novels. But that's not the truth at all. I desperately love Dragonlance novels. I just love well-written Dragonlance novels. I don't like shitty Dragonlance novels. And we have a ton of them. And these, this series just highlights really sort of the worst of the worst of the Dragonlance novels. So, 
About halfway through, I realized that I was really enjoying this story, and that hasn't happened in the last two novels anyway, so give it a go. What do you got to lose, right? All right, so uh, let's see. Chris, I okay, here's... You keep trying to push this into the last homies thing. That means that there are no more homies, which would mean the death of this channel. And so it can't be the end of the last homies. It has to be like the continuation of more homies or the end of the end welcome to homies or like, I understand you're trying to like spin a, a you know, a, a turn of phrase or something, but it's just not landing well is all. Um, greetings from Bogato. Bog Bogota? I don't even know where that is, Jonathan. But thanks for joining live from Bogota. That's dope. Let me know where that is. Uh, ben, how you doing? Thanks for joining live. Can you expect review of the Wizards of the Coast campaign after it drops? 100% yes, Ben. You can definitely expect a review of it. Um, I did the pre-order, so I'll get it through D&D Beyond two weeks before it's officially released in hardcover edition. So that was two weeks are going to be me reading the entirety of it and um, giving you my spoiler-free review and setting up a playthrough. I've already reached out to members of the channel and given them an option of joining me as players in the game because I'm going to run the game itself. Um, the, so you'll be able to watch it unfold as it actually you know, happens. But um, ultimately, I'll give you my spoiler-free review of it before I start that playthrough of the adventure itself but I'm very much looking forward to it. Even if I think it's going to suck, I'm still going to play through the whole thing and give it a chance because Dragonlance is like pizza. It's like bad sex. It's still sex. It's still pizza. You know, it may not have been wonderful, but at least you got laid. <laughs> That's something. <laughs> you know, there's a point in everyone's life when you have to just say, it's good enough. <laughs> Let's just... Let's end the meal, let's end the encounter, let's end the experience, but it was what it was, you know? That may end up being what it is. You never know until you try it. I'm going to give it a go. Uh, okay, Benjamin, thanks for joining live. How you doing? Michael, what is up? How you doing? Thanks for joing live. Preview the new Dragonlance game looks cool. I mean, that's an opinion. <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to shit on your opinion. I, I think uh, the previews that I saw really bummed me out because... it. it let me contextualize all of this because ultimately, and we have to admit this as fans of Dragonlance, with every version of Dungeons and Dragons that Dragonlance has been a part of, it has fundamentally changed Dragonlance. It's changed player options. It's changed uh, functions. Sometimes they've added things to it. They've added options that weren't there before, which changed the gameplay techniques and the, 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 the world itself. Or they've completely devastated everything we knew and they changed into a card game like Dragonlance Fifth Age, the campaign that I'm running tomorrow. Um, they've always changed Dragonlance. So the only real Dragonlance, if you want to look at it as, for, as far as like legitimate Dragonlance, is AD&D Dragonlance, because that's when it was originally created by the group the first time. That is Dragonlance. Everything after that, 2nd edition, 3rd edition, Saga System, now 5th edition, are interpretations of Dragonlance for the new edition and game mechanics. And so it has to change. It has to evolve. And Dragonlance is nothing if not consistent in its inconsistencies and reneging of information. That is what Dragonlance has always been a part of. And so I have to accept and embrace the idea that 5th edition is going to change Dragonlance, some fundamental aspects of it, for the new system. But that's what every past system has done. So I can't really complain about it. All I can do is either accept it or ignore it. And I'm running a Dragonlance YouTube channel, so I'm going to accept it and I'm going to move forward with it. And hopefully it's good and hopefully I enjoy it. And fingers crossed that that's the situation. So, uh, Verkin on them. Sick Verkin. I don't, I don't know what Verkin is. You gotta explain that reference. If you attack a dragon, you get flame broiled. <laughs> yeah, for sure, dude. Um, was the Dragonite a famous character of the Dragonlance world? No, Michael. In fact, they never explained at all who the Dragonite or what the Dragonite was. Or if he was even a Dragon Knight. All it was, was a dude who had the title of Dragon Knight, 
what it meant, we don't know. What powers it imbued, if any, we don't know. And that whoever would, like, someone else had to be named Dragonite to end the curse of Viranesh Keep. That was the entirety of the whole story, which is weird and leaving me wanting for better storytelling. Uh, but again, it was better than some of the other books. So, Jason, yeah, it is Happy Friday, man. Thanks again. I really do appreciate that. Uh, you're five, six, large people. <laughs> yeah. It's, it was, it's the worst experience fighting a big dude. It's just the worst. I'm not a big dude. I'm like, I'm, I'm 6'1". I'm 185 pounds, so I'm not a, a wafy character, but I'm, I'm not like huge, you know? Fighting a big dude is not fun. First of all, I don't like fighting anyway, but if you have to like go toes with someone, you got to go toes. And it's not enjoyable <laughs> at all. So what are you going to do? All right, so um, Columbia. Oh, hell yeah. Dude, I want to hit, I don't want to hit Columbia because that sounds very violent right now. But I want to hit South America so bad. So bad. It's so beautiful down there. Uh, you have more slots for players asking for a friend. I do have more slots. I'm waiting to hear from members first and then I'm going to open up to uh, other people on the channel. Let's see. Uh, you want to join one of the games? You have to fit into the schedule that I'm playing. It's going to be Saturdays from 11.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Mountain time. If you can devote yourself to that time, then you might be able to get in in a slot. But if you can't, then don't say you could and don't try to join because it's just going to be disappointing for the other players and for everyone else when, you know, a player has to keep dropping because they couldn't meet the schedule. You are large people. All right. <laughs> Cheers. Forget the Kender character. Ashley Goldman. Ashley's great. Goldman's great. Uh, Forget the Kender is going to be so fun. I've got a really fun twist. I hope it pays off. It's all just character. You know what I mean? It's, it's just about telling a good story, having fun with some friends online, and enjoying it, your time. You know, it's not overtly trying to be too serious. You know, there's, there's those different podcasts where they do like those live play and they try their best to be critical role or they try to be like uber actors I like falling into a character and I like playing NPCs as fully realized characters, giving them voices, showing emotion and stuff. But there is a point where you're going off the edge and you're, you're sacrificing the game for your own moment to shine. And I don't enjoy that. I don't know anyone who does enjoy that. So role play when it's appropriate and zip it when it's appropriate. But knowing that line for some people is very hard. So it's just something you have to, you know, as players, you either have to agree that we're going to go 100% in just pure role playing or we're going to do some of the actual game and role play or we're just going to do the game with no role play. But you have to do that before you get into the game. Otherwise, it's going to be miserable for everyone. You're looking forward to episode two. The ogre was tough in episode one. Yeah, dude. I didn't expect the ogre to be that <laughs> tough at all. It was almost a total player kill, to be 100% honest. But I didn't want to kill the characters first <laughs> on the first episode. <laughs> it was so brutal. Oh, I played vampire too, dude. I liked werewolf more than I liked vampire. But Masquerade, I had a lot of fun with Vampire the Masquerade. Um, I did um, I did live action, though. I, I never did, like, the LARPing, you know, where you're like, I don't know. I don't, do you roll dice in LARPing, or is it all just role play? I never did that. But I always loved actually, like, getting into the characters so that, you know, the character for this campaign is very different from the character from that campaign. And you just get to sort of fall into something new and have wonderful new experiences and interactions with players. And, and that way, when you sit down at the table, you know, your friend who always loves to play the rogue and is always the roguish character, or, you know, whatever class, at least they get to experience a different side of you as a person and as a player. And I think that adds to the fun of it when you can sort of switch it up and, and sort of dip your toes in different pools, you know what I mean? Try different things out. <laughs> paper rock scissors that's how you did it really paper rock scissors <sighs> i had too many like straight up gothic friends who really thought they were vampires 100 percent real on that um i couldn't do that 
that's too much for me. I can't. Um, if it's a short campaign with enough notice, you can make that happen. It's going to be the um, it's going to be the Shadow of the Dragon Queen campaign that I'm going to be running um, in starting in December. So I think I have it tentatively planned for starting December 10th, which I think should be a Saturday, and then it'll be every either every Saturday or every other Saturday until we're done with the campaign. So however long the campaign lasts, it's like from first level to 10th level. I've never run a 5th edition game before. I have to read all the rules. I've never... I've played in a 5th edition campaign for two sessions before. That's it. I didn't even know all the rules. So it's going to be totally new to me. But I have so many years of background of playing D&D that I'm sure I can pick it up. It can't be hard. Um, it's not like it's 3rd edition where you have to like freaking needle down into every little nook and cranny of everything to figure everything out. Oh, yeah, chicks and... Okay, well, that does sound good. <laughs> Jason, that sounds actually delightful. Uh, this is uh, long ago now, but in high school, some group legit named themselves the Vampire Goss and would pretend to feed on each other. So, Wade, tip my cap. I knew those people, but they didn't pretend to drink each other's blood. They literally did. It was... Uh, it was, a, it was a real thing. <laughs> it wasn't like gallons of blood. You know, they just cut each other and like lick up their wound. But yeah, they did that. It was real. <laughs> I have some really strange experiences that aren't appropriate for this channel. But uh, yeah, I, I lived in that world for a very long time. You dug tabletop vampire all 10-sided. Yeah, dude, I did too. I loved it a lot. There's another really obscure role-playing game from Steve Jackson Games called In Nomine. And it's about the war in heaven and hell, and you play angels or demons or humans and stuff. I always loved the first two prophecy films with Christopher Walken playing Gabriel. And I always loved the, the concept of um, a third of the host of heaven was thrown to earth and became hell and the devil and all that, you know, sort of old Abrahamic uh, myths. I, I really enjoy those stories. And so that role-playing game in Nomine was a wonderful exploration of that sort of trope. And so that's another one of those games. It didn't play really well, but it was fun for the story side of it. Uh, so anyway, I don't know why I'm talking about. So thank you guys so much. That's going to do it for my review of Dragonite. Yeah, that's what we're talking about, Dragonite uh, by Dan Willis. It wasn't horrible, but it wasn't the best. And for this series, that means it was great. <laughs> What did you think of the seventh novel in the New Adventures series? Did you have a favorite part of the novel? You can always email me at info at dlsaga.com or leave comments below. I would like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel, ring the bell and get to get notified about upcoming videos and click that stupid like button. This all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content. This channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of uh, <laughs> Dragonlance Saga. And uh, I hope you'll join me in the celebration. Thank you for watching. This has been Adam with Dragonlance Saga. Until next time, Salon Javar. <laughs>